Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Brought to you by Sherwick Media, your health and wellness content specialist. Health Connect South is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations. Through our collective work, we seek to broadly define and advance the Southeast role in the future of health. Serving as a gateway between health industry silos, we seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health. We are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as part of our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in, tweet questions and comments at HealthCon Radio. Thank you for checking out the Health Connect South Radio Show. I'm C.W. Hall, your host. Over the course of the show, we've often heard our guests express the fact that access to capital is one of their greatest needs. And on last week's episode featuring the Global Center for Medical Innovation, we talked about the fact that Atlanta still has a way to go to catch up with other more traditionally recognized investment centers like Boston, San Francisco, Memphis, and others. This week, we sat down with Jack Drawn, whose background includes several successful years of working in the private equity arena with a focus in healthcare. We tapped into that experience to talk about what Atlanta can do to draw more attention from investment sources to help keep our emerging technology companies here. And Jack also talked about how he leveraged his experience working on some large mergers and acquisitions in the hospice space to elevate this health specialty into a more viable and thriving healthcare specialty that plays a vital role for the families it serves. He shares his poignant story about the personal experience he had in his own family that also inspired him to want to be a contributor to advancing the delivery of hospice care. Check it out. Our second child that was born she was born with a congenital brain defect and she only lived about nine months but I still remember the name of our hospice nurse mm. who really cared not only for our daughter Caroline but really our entire family during that very difficult time and you talk to people who've gone through very difficult caregiver experiences and those who have used hospice I guarantee four out of five if not higher would have a very positive thing to say again not only for the care that the hospice agency is able to provide for your loved one but also how much comfort they provide to the caregivers the family members we also hosted Matt Brom he's an attorney with Arnold Golden Gregory Matt's practice centers around legal needs within the healthcare arena from facilitating mergers as well as assisting with contract needs and other compliance issues. Coming up, Matt talks about the trend he's seeing across the healthcare landscape. I would say that the industry consolidation would be a major theme right now, even in the the hospice industry. Uh, You're seeing a lot, and it's probably due to declining reimbursement, new delivery payment models. You're starting to see more value-based reimbursement, which is really urging providers to affiliate and collaborate together to reduce costs. Stick around. we got the full interview with Matt Brom and Jack Drawn coming up next. Good morning, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on the Health Connect South Radio Show, episode 41, already upon us. Joined in studio, as always, by Diana Keogh of Sherwick Media Group. And as always, good to be here. That's right. And really pleased to have you. And if you're not familiar with Sherwick Media Group, make sure you get over to Sherwick. They're a health and wellness content creation company. They have a team full of healthcare journalists that work with media companies and other types of organizations that are trying to share useful information both to their internal employees as well as to create helpful and interesting health information for folks who visit their website. And they do a great job across all media platforms, including video, digital, and print. And I've seen a lot of their work. They've done the work with the Health Connect South events and 
and it's top notch. So make sure you get over and check them out. And then, of course, if you've not got it booked already, you need to make sure you get scheduled for the next upcoming event with Health Connect South. That's going to be on November 10th, 2 to 4.30 at Durham, North Carolina. They're going to be in the North Carolina Biotech Center at the Hamner Conference Center. They've got a registration under the events tab on healthconnectsouth.com. If you use the promo code RADIOX, you'll get 20% off of your registration fee. And they're going to be talking about precision medicine and healthcare innovation and interconnectivity of health. A lot of topics that we've actually gotten into a little bit here, and they're very important. So you'll be able to hear some great experts sharing some information about those topics. Yeah, if you Great lineup of panelists. Yeah. And we're really pleased to have the gentleman that we have with us in the studio today. Over time, we've talked to a number of emerging healthcare technology companies, for example, that are trying to go through their evolution and acquire funds. The process of that involves some intellectual property concerns and things like that, legal issues. So we've got experts, actually, that come from backgrounds in both of those. We've got Jack Drawn. He was one of the co-founders of the hospice company Halcyon, recently acquired by a large company here in the States. And we'll be able to talk a little bit about the hospice care arena. And then you've also come with a background earlier in your career, Jack. You had some investment banking expertise that you started with, and then you were able to kind of leverage that into your later work in your uh startups. Thank you, CW. Happy to be here. I'm pleased to have you. And then, of course, we've got Matt Brom. I got introduced to him by a colleague over at Arnold Golden Gregory, Michael Golden, said, hey, you should check with Matt Brom. He's one of our healthcare experts. And clearly, I'm sure there's a few things to talk about on the legal spectrum of things and as it relates to Absolutely. healthcare. So really happy to have you here with us today. Thank you for having me. Jack, you know everybody in the room here as it happens. Through your work, you've ended up working with uh, everyone at the table. So we can start with you and then we can kind of have you kind of join in uh, our conversation as we get over to Matt's expertise. So so take us through some of your background, because as I said, you had some early expertise in the investment side of things with some focus in healthcare, and then ultimately you started a company and, and grew it from there in the hospice arena. So how'd you get to that place? I graduated from the University of Georgia, and from there I moved to New York. I worked for Lehman Brothers, their investment banking group, as an analyst at undergrad, so lowest on the totem pole, <laughs> but it was a great educational experience for me. You work a lot of hours, but you learn a lot about mergers, acquisitions, the, and capital markets. The big markets. question is, how many all-nighters did he pull in a row? Three. Yeah. Three in a row. It's, it's impressive how many hours they guys, these guys work. <laughs> So even though I was only there for two years, it felt like I may have been there for three years <laughs> if you count work hours. So learned a lot and then was lucky enough really to get on the ground floor of a uh, private equity firm that became known as Our Capita. At the time, when I left, we were the one of the largest private equity firms in the Southeast. I had a great mentor there named Charlie Ogburn who really took me under his wing and he had a healthcare background and uh, we worked on a lot of healthcare investments together. Toward the end, I led the U.S. healthcare practice and one of the transactions that I led was the acquisition of TLC Healthcare Services, which at the time was the largest privately owned home health and hospice company in the U.S. It was a buy and build strategy similar to what we started at Halcyon, and ultimately we sold that to a publicly traded company called Emeticis. After that, then the financial crisis hit, and a lot of us in the transaction world for the first time had a chance to step back and take a breath and, and see what we wanted to do next. And I realized I wasn't as excited to look at at the next, quote, deal coming through. And ultimately, I wanted to run my own company. So to do that, you need to get operational experience versus just having investing and M&A experience. So I co-founded House in Hospice with Dan Cole. Dan does come from the operations world, and he brought the proverbial gray hair to the group. <laughs> He's 18 years my senior. And again, I got very lucky having a great mentor. But my pitch to him with his operational expertise and my M&A experience, we could raise private equity to back us 
we could build our own hospice company. And we were able to find a private equity investor out in San Francisco. They backed us and we ultimately acquired five companies over about four and a half years, rebranded them all Halcyon, integrated them into one consolidated operation, grew it. And then I'm happy to say we just sold it to LHC Group, which is another publicly traded home health and hospice company just last month. You mentioned that when you first started in the investment side of things that you focused very heavily in the healthcare sector. Was that a choice you made or was that more or less happenstance that they said, this is what you're going to work on? It was pure happenstance, uh, if I'm honest. Again, so Charlie, who ran our capital for us in the U.S., he had some healthcare background and I started working with him on the first couple of healthcare deals and I realized I enjoyed working in the healthcare sector And certainly it helps. It's the largest sector of the U.S. economy, and I don't think it's going anywhere. In fact, it's only going to expand as the baby boomers continue to age. Plus, it's less affected by the economic downturns. And so that also attracted me to it. You know, it's interesting that most people would not think of hospice as being something that can be bought and sold or even done on a very large scale, which in a couple of ways, it makes the element of making healthcare a little bit more personal, less daunting to think about. But explain how that's done. How do you make hospice, which is such a personal and a hands-on, one-on-one operation, into a big business? When hospice started out, it was only run by not-for-profits. And that started changing probably 15 to 20 years ago. Now about 40% of the industry in hospice is still run by not-for-profits, but the 60% is for-profit. And the reason why I wanted to get into hospice is, is several fold. Number one, it really is actually have a very personal experience with hospice. But besides that, I saw the value that it brings to patients. But because so much of the industry had been run by not-for-profits. My experience with TLC taught me, and as I learned, as I started looking at more hospice companies, hospice is really behind a lot of other healthcare sectors as far as professional management, accountability, and sales and marketing expertise. And that's what I thought we could really bring to the table. And I think it still lacks that a lot. And the more that that management acumen is brought to the industry, the more patients who are in need of hospice we can reach. Well, and if you don't mind my asking, I'd love to hear that personal story because a lot of listeners that are listening think of hospice only in a macabre setting. Hospice has so many different dimensions. So if you don't mind my asking, share would you share your personal story with it? Our second child that was born, she was born with a congenital brain defect and she only lived about nine months. But I still remember the name of our hospice nurse mm. who really cared not only for our daughter Caroline, but really our entire family during that very difficult time. And you talk to people who've gone through very difficult caregiver experiences and those who have used hospice, I guarantee four out of five, if not higher, would have a very positive thing to say. Again, not only for the care that the hospice agency is able to provide for your loved one, but also how much comfort they provide to the caregivers, the family members. And so finding people on an industrial scale with that personal touch and where, you know, the same I have, I remember every single nurse that took care of both of my dad and my mom on a rotating basis. And we were in a nonprofit with both of them. Um, and so how do you do that? I mean, how, how is that done on such an industrial scale? Sure. You know, we recruit our nurses from the same way that the not-for-profits do. And um, it takes a special person to care for hospice, particularly the nurses, because they go through, think about it, mm-hmm. every, not every patient, but the vast majority of their patients are going to die. You only can qualify for hospice for Medicare to pay for hospices if a physician certifies that in his best belief, this patient's going to die within six months or less. Wow. So think about all the patients that nurses care for that ultimately die. That can burn out a lot of people. Mm-hmm. 
On the other hand, the people who are so attracted to hospice are those that see the impact they have not only on the patient, but the families as well. Mm -hmm. And we would definitely compete against not-for-profits a lot. And uh, we took a lot of pride in this service. When I talk about accountability, every single patient, by the time we sold housing, we had 835 patients on staff. We're in Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina. Every single patient that we admitted within 72 hours, we do a simple 10-question survey with the family caregiver. In other words, uh, maybe the daughter of the mother that we're caring for. And she'd answer 10 critical questions uh, that directly related to care and then also rank us on a scale of one to five. Anybody who got below a four um, would have to answer to us, uh, both Dan and I, about how they're going to fix the situation. So we were that hands-on. And creating that kind of accountability loop really raised the level of our service. And toward the end, we were the only hospice provider in Atlanta to win um, the top award for hospice, including all the not-for-profits. So, and so were you actually asking the critical questions of the nursing staff or we're, or the management team? Both. So the entire team that touched the patient was on this uh, email distribution list, the charge nurse, so the nurse in charge of the patient, the certified uh, nursing assistant, the social worker, the chaplain, and then the nurse's supervisor, the account executive or the clinical liaison who interacts with the family. And then finally, uh, Dan and I were also on that list. Interesting, because, you know, when you're going through that experience, it's almost like a holy ground experience. So, um, you know, what did you have to change to go from that personal experience in like a more of a hospital setting um, to actually bring in that personal? I mean, the critical questions are are one thing, but that is almost like an after reaction as opposed to kind of setting it up to be the deep dive and make it seem as though it's as personal as a, a very small setting. We found that of all of our caregivers know on the front end, we're asking these surveys and their reviews are impacted by the surveys that uh, while the survey may be after the fact, knowing in advance we're doing this really helps la- or raise the level of service throughout our entire company. And that's what I talk about the accountability that we started raising has a great impact. It means we had 400 employees by the time we sold, and it's so important that everyone is uh, accountable to each other as a team. And we took a lot of pride that when we go into markets, we would um, eventually become the market leader. It was because of our service more than anything else and how you were able to grow in hospice. We didn't do any advertising. It's truly through word of mouth. Interesting. Now, with with your company, was the care all delivered in brick-and-mortar type facilities, or were you able to provide some in-home type care as well? How did, it, how did it flow? Sure. That's a very common question we get from families. A lot of people think that hospice only occurs in a building. Right. Um, and that's, again, how it was a long time ago, but now the vast majority of our patients are cared for in their home, and we're finding more and more families prefer to be cared for in their home. Certainly the hospital is one of the last places they want to be cared for. Sure. And sometimes you can't avoid it. But uh, the home is the preference. We also provide service within assisted living facilities and nursing homes. So they're place of residence, if you will. And then finally, we did have two brick-and-mortar buildings called inpatient unit facilities. And to qualify those, uh, you have to be very sick and have acute symptoms. Um, but uh, And you generally need... 24-hour around-the-clock care, and we had two uh, of those buildings. Again, they still exist today, just LHC and some ones in Dunwoody and ones in uh, Mississippi, northern Mississippi. With the businesses that you bought, what radical changes did you have to make to basically bring it in line with your mission statement? Sure. 
We, um, the good news is we would always buy agencies outside of our service level. So we weren't out, uh, ever going in to do layoffs. In fact, we're looking to hire more caregivers. If we're going to grow, we've got to hire more caregivers. Where you would see the change with us is on our clinical liaisons. Those are interacting with the outside community. For example, if you're looking for a hospice, the average person is really not going to uh, go what a, a billboard tells them to go. But instead, <laughs> right. they're going to talk to their doctor yeah. or they'll talk to their parent's doctor and they'll get their recommendations. Or a social worker in the hospital. Exactly. So um, what we would do is our clinical liaisons, we would train them and educate them about our service. And we would provide them with the data that truly demonstrated that our service um, was better than the competition. And that's how um, we were able to go out and grow. And so the changes we were making weren't um, on the caregiver side, but they were on the clinical liaison, if you recall, them, account executive side, and educating them and showing them through data how we are able to beat out those not-for-profits. Because there's a perception sometimes that the not-for-profits are just better caregivers because they don't pay taxes, but we do a lot to um, alter that perception. Yeah. So are your account executives kind of set up as pharma sales reps? I mean, are, are we getting dinners and pens and <laughs> cups out of it? Uh, no dinners. Um, in fact, we found we hired a few former pharma reps, and they didn't work out well. Uh, probably uh, an example, one of the better reps uh, that we wound up hiring was a former pastor, again, who had a personal experience with hospice. And uh, he joined and did a, a fantastic job up in the northeastern corner of Georgia and eventually made him a, a regional sales manager. So it's those type of people. We do hire some former salespeople, but if we hire them, it's very important they have some personal connection to hospice because the best, quote, salespeople, and I hate to use that word, but the best salespeople are those who are authentic mm -hmm. and are speaking sincerely. And people are smart. They, they feel that. And they know uh, when someone's being authentic or not. And so what was the major pushback that you did get? I hate to say it, but it was really a lot of times from the family. There's still a terrible perception about hospice that if I put my father on hospice, he's going to die. In fact, Duke's come out with an, uh, a study that's showing uh, for various forms of cancer, you actually live longer on hospice than on chemotherapy. And so we're, we're trying our best to alter uh, some misperceptions about hospice that it's not just a place to go to die. Instead, we're there to provide comfort uh, for the patient and for the family. And, all, and oftentimes, uh, um, because the body is now more comforted, that allows them to live longer. Well, and it's it's so one-on-one -on -one care that a lot of, especially the nursing home um, patients, actually come back and survive even longer once they've had a time on hospice care. I mean, from personal experience, we know that to be true. Right. We've been speaking with an, the expert in investment banking and healthcare and obviously in hospice care, Jack Drawn, who co-founded the company called Halcyon and uh, was able to successfully grow that into a, quite a large operation, providing a high level of hospice care to patients around the southeast and ultimately uh, sold that company here recently. And we're learning about the hospice space. I'm curious, Jack, have the... Have the changes in the law with the ACA, how has that affected hospice? Was it, is it improving access? Are there more patients that are now able and seeking out this type of care that maybe didn't before, or has it really changed that much? You know, the ACA specifically has not impacted the hospice uh, industry directly. Uh, it, it did, you know, um, it increased our own health insurance costs just for our own employees, but it did not impact the hospice industry directly. Now, having said that, getting away from the ACA just to the federal government, if you're in healthcare services 
or really any um, service that accepts money from the government will still to stick to health care uh, right now. But so 94% of our cash collections were for Medicare because if you think about the average age of a hospice patient, it's going to be over 65. So anytime the government's running deficits, I don't see that changing anytime soon, they're going to be looking to cut costs. And they look across the entire healthcare uh, spectrum for Medicare. And so whether you are a hospital or whether you're hospice, you uh, need to be careful down the road that future rate cuts are coming because it's the government's job. And as a U.S. citizen, I totally understand it. We've got to cut costs and hopefully get our uh, deficits under control. So you've always got to be cognizant of that and removing waste and inefficiencies from the system. And we represent a lot of hospice companies. And I don't know if this is your experience as well, but we've noticed a very aggressive posture by the OIG as of late against hospice companies. I think that's going to be true. I know I'm I'm part of a medical practice here in town and a good number of our patients end up being Medicare as well. And it's the same, same for, for all of us. It it sounds as though they're actually going to build quite a team and actually start getting very aggressive. It might make it flat out scary actually for a period of time. Right. And the OIG just released their 2016 work plan yesterday and hospice was right at the top of the list. So really, and why do you think that is just an easy target or? Well, and you know, you may have a better insight to this, but it, it may just be that in the hospice formerly, you had a lot of mom and pops that really didn't have sophisticated managers running the business. And so maybe there's a, there's a lot of room for them to come after these, these mom and pop shops. I think also the hospice industry has nearly doubled, I think, in the last maybe 15 years. And, of course, as someone who's from the industry, I would argue we're growing because our demographics are changing and our bodies are living longer, but our brains aren't necessarily keeping up with our bodies. And that's why you're seeing so many more uh, cases of Alzheimer's, right, and dementia. And so, which is the number one growth in hospice, not surprisingly. I see. The issue with the government, though, is they sometimes move with a blunt hammer. And when they see a sector growing, they, they sometimes think, gosh, is that due to fraud and abuse? So we're going to turn up the magnifying glass here. And, you know, that's all right. It does increase the cost um, of running a hospice, keeping up with these regulations. But at the end of the day, we didn't worry so much about it. We knew we were doing things the right way. And um, everybody's subject to audits by the government, and you deal with it and you move on. So as a family that is listening to this, um, what types of things should they be looking for in hospice care? Like what are the questions to answer and what are the facilities and what types of characteristics should they be looking for? I would, uh, number one, consult your uh, trusted caregiver, whether it's a social worker, nurse, or doctor for who they recommend and then uh, you should interview one, two, maybe three, depending on how much time you have, uh, but more than one hospice to compare them. And then the questions you should ask are, um, how often is my loved one going to receive a visit from your company and what type of care? So will a nurse come twice a week? Will a CNA come three times a week? Will a social worker come once a week? Will a chaplain, if I want it, come once a week? And the good hospices are providing not only quality care, but frequent care that help ease a lot of your burden. And the CNAs, when they come, they can help with activities of daily living, such as light cleaning up around the house, bathing mother, uh, those types of things that, again, ease the caregiver, the family member's burden. As far as the the reimbursement or you know insurance, you talked about the fact that so many of the patients tend to be Medicare. What 
how do people prepare if 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 they can prepare for their portion if they have a portion of paying for this because I would imagine that several months of care in home could potentially be fairly expensive. How do people tackle that? Well, that's great news for families who need hospice because Medicare pays for 100%. Okay. And so does Medicaid. So there's no copay, there's no deductible. 100% is paid up. And that is because we believe um, Medicare offers such a a value proposition um, versus the cost of the patient staying in the intensive care unit. And uh, the cost is so much lower that the government um, recognizes that and therefore they don't charge any type of deductible or copay. You know, there have been, you know, when you do hear about hospice, it's either one extreme or the other, how, how cherished and precious it is, or the fact that they just took all of grandma's jewelry. Oh, um, yeah. So as far as screening hospice care, what are your suggestions for that? Yeah, no, it's it's a good question. And again, we had uh, 400 employees and I would say we're in the people business, so I know we're going to be making mistakes, right? Um, you try your very best to screen uh, employee. Well, you do screen every single employee. It's required by law. And were you doing background checks absolutely. as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're required to. And so we would do that. But even uh, with that, sometimes you'll get a bad egg. And when you find that, you just have to move immediately. And you apologize to the family. Luckily, we never had theft or anything extreme. But you do have people who sometimes are apathetic. And uh, you just have to make a change uh, very quickly. Yeah, because the people that are working in your home are, you know, that's, it's such an intimate Mm -hmm. experience and intimate setting. It's not as though you've got people checking unless you've got cameras set up. And of course, you know, everyone on Facebook, those are the pictures that usually go viral about, you know, someone, you know, shaking an elderly person or. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's, It's terrible. I've seen it. And it's, and I always try to think, gosh, and. Uh, whichever healthcare provider that was, I, I feel bad for because, you know, you can provide 400 cases a day of high quality care and one that's really bad and it can really hurt yeah. your reputation. That's, that's a very tough part about being in our industry. Yeah. It's kind of like getting married. You really don't know who you married until what, six months into it? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> mm-hmm. Do we have any additional thoughts for, for folks who may be listening regarding the, the hospice side of things? Because I wanted to touch a little bit on your background in healthcare finance uh, and transition and kind of bring Matt in a little bit more too, since you all had worked together on a number of things in that kind of space. Because one of the topics that we've had here on the show a number of times, we always asked groups when they come here, what what is it that you need? What are you looking for? And inevitably funding is one of those things, particularly for the emerging companies. So before we jump over, are there some thoughts that you have? To okay, are you looking for your next gig now? Hospice? I am, as a matter of fact. I uh Again, we Dan and I were backed by a private equity firm, and we sold that uh, company. And so I am looking for my next um, gig, as Diana said. <laughs> Opportunity. Opportunity. And I would like to stay in the hospice industry. And uh, so I'm talking to um, a few investors, and I'm considering, um, on a smaller scale, maybe doing it myself, too. But so if anybody's listening and knows of a high-quality hospice agency, uh, please contact me. My uh, email is jack.drawn, D-R-A-U-G-H-O-N, at gmail.com. So we don't have to worry about you being up on the corner of Peachtree and fire no. or anything? <laughs> uh, not yet, at least. Okay. All right. We'll provide hospice for food. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So on the on the finance and investment side of things, uh, I, I, 
I'm just beginning to kind of learn some of the terms. So I'm not, I'm, I'm, I was clinical and not really on the, the finance or at least the investment side of things. And as it relates to securing funding for their company, are there some missteps that some of these companies make? Uh, I guess I'm sure the earlier they are in their stages, there's some missteps they may make that would make it challenging for them to acquire funding that we might be able to share with them to hopefully steer them in the sure. right direction. One thing I would share that they may, may not hear um, a lot, but I tell my friends this too, um, who approach me like, hey, I'm thinking about raising outside capital. What do you think? Wait for as long as you possibly can to raise outside capital and then wait a little longer. Because once you raise that external capital, you're going to have people looking over your shoulder and they have a right to do that. They, they have a fiduciary responsibility to do that. They have every right to do that, but it's going to be, be a distraction. And a lot of investors are not going to add value to your business. A lot of them do. But, um, and I, I wouldn't even try to put a percentage on how many do or how many don't, but there's just uh, be careful because once you start bringing in outside investors, it's no longer your company. And it's, it's your company along with someone else's, and they're going to have a right in major decisions, and it's going to take you time to prepare financials, to present to them, to have board meetings, all those things. It may be a good thing as you get bigger. You may need that capital, but don't raise capital unless you absolutely have to. And then think, of why do you have to? Um, the other comment I'll make is then once you raise capital, I've also had some friends say, ah, I've raised capital. I'm so excited. You know, I'm going to go on vacation now. <laughs> I mean, that, that's not, it's not an event in itself. That Just because you raise capital doesn't make your business better. It right. improves the balance sheet. And yes, it secures payroll for so many more weeks or months, but it hasn't changed your business in a fundamental way. Right. And are there, are there common mistakes that people make? I mean, besides the timing of maybe going out and trying to get involved with uh, some outside funding, maybe too early? Yes. So uh, outside investors, investors sometimes will invest with a security called preferred stock. And what that will mean is they're going to demand a, uh, a guaranteed, not guaranteed, but before you get any money, a rate of return, call it an 8% um, yield uh, annually on their investment. And that's not paid out. It's compounded. And they'll say, oh, this is a good thing because cash isn't coming out of your business. You can keep the cash for your business. But the problem with that is entrepreneurs by nature are optimistic. And they're going to think, 8% is nothing. I can, right. I can easily grow out of that. Five, seven years from now, it's doubled the side to the power of compounding. If somebody invested $1,000 in your business, you now have to pay them back $2,000 in seven years or so. So people often underestimate uh, the cost of capital especially as optimistic as they're going to be in the investor will say, well, don't you have no problem hitting this? They're like, oh, you're right. I won't have a problem. But be conservative. It's, uh, it's all right to be humble because at the end of the day, the lower you negotiate that rate of return to the investor, the more it goes in your pocket. Not to mention when you first start out, how expensive that money ends up being, um, you know, just to get your, your business up and going as well. Exactly. And Matt, I know that you work in healthcare transactions pretty right. heavily as part of your legal focus. Um, you know, one of the topics that came up last week when we were talking to GCMI was the fact that for whatever reason, uh, Atlanta, even, even though we've got great academic resources, we've got some logistics um, support in terms of like clean room resources and different things like that that GCMI uh, provides, that we have had limited focus from, I guess, bigger money, you know, the, the lending sources and investment sources. Do you all have some thoughts on 
why that is and what maybe needs to happen. Why is it so hard for these entrepreneurs coming out of tech, especially for bio um, and medical devices? Why is it so hard for them to raise money here in Atlanta or even the Southeast? I think it's starting to change some. I think you're starting to see some of the more startups, especially on the healthcare technology side in Atlanta. Um, And I think the focus initially was on big companies, startups in New York and the the bigger cities. But I I think you're starting to see more of that in Atlanta. Yeah, I mean, with the... I know GCMI is really trying to pull together those resources as much as they can to really create an ecosystem. But we're just trying to uh, see if we can give information out there that might, you know, inspire someone yeah, to either start, pay more attention starting to Starting to change doesn't necessarily help someone that's right. no, trying exactly to start right. up. You're exactly right. So in your in your practice in healthcare, Matt, I mean, how, how did you land on healthcare as the space that you're going to do your legal work in? So I grew up in a family that was around healthcare. And my dad, he's always been in healthcare administration. He, uh, uh, in Atlanta, the last job he had was uh, CFO of Eggleston before their uh, merger with Scottish Rite. And, um, but he's, he's gone on to do startups and he, he travels the country and he takes healthcare companies from the beginning and tries to sell them off after a few years. And It's so always I, good to have a lawyer in the family when yeah, you're doing right. that. That's exactly yeah. right. Uh, so I went to University of Georgia for undergrad. Then I went to law school at Syracuse up in New York, graduated in 2007. And I've been doing healthcare transactions since then. What are you seeing as far as that arena goes? I mean, is, it, it seems like there is a lot of a lot kind of, of coming tra- together. A lot of transactions. Uh, I would say that the industry consolidation would be a major theme right now, even in the the hospice industry. Uh, you're seeing a lot, and that's probably due to declining reimbursement, new delivery payment models. You're starting to see more value-based reimbursement, which is really urging providers to affiliate and collaborate together to reduce costs. So efficiency being the big thing they're trying to get in a lot of cases, I guess. And I would add to what Matt talked about earlier with the OIG work plan and so forth. Again, it does increase the cost of compliance. Yeah. The more the government focuses on you, and so that's why you're going to continue to see consolidation. And so you're going to, there's so many mom and pops, particularly in hospice right now, but I think that's going to change because the government will continue to raise the cost of compliance through increased regulation, which is going to drive consolidation. Plus, it's a lot harder for them to regulate an industry with 4,000 participants. It's much easier, like the Dallas industry has four or five who have 80% market share. They know what's going on in the dialysis industry. They really don't know what's going on as much as maybe they'd like to in the hospice industry. Is this is consolidation a good thing for us as patients? You know, that's a, that's a great debate. Uh, I could argue both sides of that, um, but until the government, I think that's what they're looking for. Yeah. Um, that's what they're signaling. So, I, you know, that's not for me to say. Um, even with all the consolidation, operability is still such a huge issue. Um, and we were having a conversation with a client yesterday that the systems don't even talk to each other. They're, they're trying to get things implemented. And again, with the mom and pops trying to get the consolidation, but the consolidation happening and still they still can't talk to systems. Right. It's, it's, it's absolutely a work in progress. Uh, uh, that we were talking about the Affordable Care Act. Some of the initiatives in, in that legislation, you've got bundled payments and you've got uh, ACOs, CIOs, and that's a way of trying to get providers to collaborate together. Uh, ACOs, it's you're really getting a lot of 
hospitals, physicians, physician groups coming together under one roof and speaking to each other and trying to get the EMR systems to connect to each other and really reducing costs. And to the extent that they are able to achieve savings, that they'll be able to share in those savings. Yeah, we work with a lot of platforms and I don't necessarily, I mean, for vendors that are working with the EMR systems, it looks like it's coming down to two mighty, mighty warriors here. And I don't know if that's actually a good thing. So, you know, again, speak to the audience here about, is this a good thing for patients? And I'm, I'm, I'm talking, I want you guys as experts that can see both sides of the industry to talk to the patients that are listening on why this is either a good or a bad thing for the industry well, f- or for from patients. A provider consolidation, meaning hospitals coming together. I, I do think it's a good thing. I, I think that in the long run, it is going to reduce costs. And it, it, when, per, say, you've got two large hospital systems, one's got a great uh, women's care center and one's got a great orthopedic center, I think it's it's a good thing for those systems to come together and uh, collaborate. And to the extent that you've got a patient who you know, maybe they're a patient of the one hospital, but they didn't have the orthopedic center before. Now they've collaborated with the other hospital down the street that they can send that patient over there. And I guess that would enable a little bit more of the interoperability that Diana was talking about because it encourages, I guess, moving towards a common underlying platform. But in your in your legal practice, as it relates to, to the healthcare, I mean, where do you tend to spend the lion's share of your focus. I mean, what are the trends and, and the places that are requiring? We represent a lot, a lot of hospitals right now and into the theme of industry consolidation. We're, we're assisting multiple hospitals in affiliation, merger transactions. And uh, from that perspective, you really see the whole gamut in hospital to hospital affiliations. You have loose affiliations, which maybe aren't the merger, and you have true mergers. You have sole member substitutions, which really bring them together as well. We also do a lot of hospital physician transactions. And you're really seeing a lot. There was the thought that it would start to slow down, but it really hasn't slowed down. And you're still seeing hospitals acquiring physician groups, mostly in the specialty cardiology, cardiovascular surgeons. Why? Why is that happening? Well... Reimbursement. Yeah. I mean, okay. it, the drop in reimbursement and then physicians, they're not, physician practices, frankly, aren't making, they're not as profitable anymore. Um, and their rates are dropping and a hospital gives them an offer, maybe a, a guarantee over so many years. And then they, that physician realizes, hey, man, I, I don't have to worry about paying overhead. Yeah. Uh, I get to worry about practicing medicine now and don't have to worry about all the bureaucracy. Cardiology was one of those spaces yeah. that really saw a retraction because there for a while, kind of like orthopedics, right. the, the, particularly the interventional people, they wanted to have the radiographic equipment out there to be able to do their stress tests and things like that in the office and some even some stenting and different things like that they were trying to do. That was the first specialty that really went in. And you, yeah. don't, you really don't see many independent cardiology groups anymore. Well, when the, yeah. when the I guess in 09, that's when I was staffing cardiology yeah. physicians and they were talking about my, my reimbursement got cut overnight 21% yeah. and those are some big the the opaque dyes that they're using to to do that the radioactive materials that they're having to purchase to conduct those studies are extremely expensive not to mention just buying the equipment so I guess 
reeling them back in is is the big thing. And and many practices around here, primary care and, and all of that. So they're getting you involved, I guess, in, in that kind of a process. That's right. Yeah, we, we, we do from start to finish, due, due diligence all the way through closing. And are there places in that area that, that you see that that there are, if I'm a physician listening, because a lot of people come to us from healthcare, are there some things that they can do as a practice before they start having that conversation that helps them in that process? Really, do do some due diligence on yourself uh, and know where your faults are, where maybe you can improve a buyer coming in and knowing what they're going to be looking at, which may which may kill a deal. Are there some e- examples of in, what you in, in, Investigations. Uh, if you've got a lot of employment suits against you, um, if you have a lot of liens against you, tax liens, things like that. Malpractice suits. Malpractice that, suits. And that's I, looked I, down on? I have, I, yes. <laughs> I have seen a few deals that have died uh, over malpractice suits. We were going to close one um, a few months ago, and the day before closing, uh, one of the physicians was hit with a malpractice lawsuit, and the deal was off. Bummer. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> with with regards to the the mergers and so forth, are there are there same kind of thing? I mean, are there some points of, of note that if we're getting ready to merge these two healthcare organizations together, that it's useful for those two systems to to think about as it relates to someone with your expertise? So there, there's obviously a lot of regulatory issues here you're talking and a kickback stark law to the extent that you've got physician and physicians involved the stark law doesn't apply to the hospice industry uh, you've got a lot of state laws state self-referral statutes which uh, the anti-kickback statute applies to what you're talking about mainly is medicare medicaid but then you've got some states that where they apply to all third-party payers blue cross blue shield etc uh, there's you're starting to see a lot of pressure from the FTC with all of this consolidation. Here, we're, there we're talking about antitrust issues. Um, right now, people kind of push it to the side and say, oh, you know, FTC, they'll, they'll pass it. But the more consolidation we have, the more regionalization you've got, the more that is going to become an issue. Uh, and I think we're going to start to see a lot of pushback from the FTC on some of these mega mergers out there. Uh, we're also starting, you know, there's tax issues to think about. In Georgia here, you've got from a, uh, a hospital authority perspective, a public hospital, you've got attorney general review. So anytime a hospital authority wants to do a transaction with a for-profit, they have to get attorney general review, which also gives the public um, the opportunity to comment on the deal. And so they could actually derail it if they really right. get fired up about it. That's right. I think eventually we're all going to be working for Walmart and the Cleveland Clinic. <laughs> yeah. Probably. <laughs> and, and another issue that's, that's come out, and this is really a concern for executives in the healthcare world, uh, there was a memo that was recently produced by Yates, uh, Ms. Yates over in the DOJ's office. And uh, in that memo, she published guidelines to her constituents and uh, related entities and agencies on how to prosecute healthcare executives, which is kind of, as a healthcare executive, that you know, <laughs> kind of gives you a little pause, a little yeah. concern. You know, why are, why are we the targets? Yeah, and, and why are we the targets? Well, so, sometimes they they are at fault. 
Um, and sometimes you, you've, you've got bad, some bad characters out there occasionally, um, and they're creating a bad name for the, for the good executives. How much do you encounter issues with the Stark Law and the whole self-referral piece? Because I know that that can really complicate what we've been talking about, mergers and, and coming together of different practices yeah. or physicians' offices being purchased by hospitals. But the Stark Law, from what I understand, can create some headaches in that kind of space. I would say there's two primary fraud and abuse laws. You've got the Stark Law, uh, the that's the physician self-referral law, and you've got the anti-kickback statute. Uh, the Stark Law prohibits a physician from referring uh, to an entity with which that physician has some sort of financial relationship or ownership interest um, for the provision of what are called designated health services. So it's a, it's a finite world of services that uh, they can't refer to that entity. Um, and there are exceptions to that rule, which you must meet uh, in order to have that relationship. Uh, this What's different about the Stark Law and the anti-kickback statute is the Stark Law is a strict liability statute, meaning similar to a traffic offense. If you're speeding, you're speeding. It doesn't matter what sort of mental state you have. So if you violate the main prohibition of the Stark Law and you don't mean the exception, you, you are guilty of a Stark Law violation. Um, now, there, there have been some proposed rules out there because you can see how uh, that could create – a plethora of violations. Uh, some of the, a lot of the exceptions require maybe a written agreement or a signed by both parties, and you can see how something like that could really slip through the cracks. Um, and the government doesn't want to deal with small stark violations where someone forgot to sign a document uh, while they're doing a deal. So uh, there there have been some proposed regulations to eliminate those minor offenses. So that's the Stark Law, and we see that on a daily basis with, with the, going through these deals. And that really applies to a deal you've got a physician involved. Uh, as I said, that doesn't apply to, like, the, it doesn't apply to the hospice industry. So it wouldn't apply to the hospice industry, even if the clinicians that are referring to his organization? Well, it apply to those physicians, the physicians, if they're getting a kickback from... To, well, th then we're getting into the, the anti-kickback statute because the, when I going back to that phrase designated health services, that excludes hospice services. Um, so you've got a finite world of services that apply to the Stark Law and the hospice services are not in that realm. Uh, the anti-kickback statute is a much broader statute. Um, it essentially prohibits payments for referrals uh, related to federal health care programs. And you can see how that's, I mean, that's that's pretty broad. Yeah, it's very broad. Uh, there are what are called safe harbors to the anti-kickback statute uh, that if you meet one, you are immune from prosecution by the government, but they are very difficult to meet. Uh, failure to meet the elements of a safe harbor does not necessarily mean that you are guilty of a violation of the anti-kickback statute, though. It is an intent-based statute as opposed to the Stark Law. Does that tend to come up when you're looking into maybe more rural areas where services and, and absolutely. things like that are absolutely. limited so you really don't have a lot of choices to where and, to send this person? Absolutely. And given that it is an intent-based statute, you really have to paper the file. Uh, for example, you're doing a transaction, go out and get valuations. You want to make sure you're paying fair market value and no one can come in and say that you're, you're paying someone for referrals. 
Uh, so it's really about papering the file and showing that there was no intent to induce. And I'll just say, as, as a healthcare executive and for those out there who are contemplating getting in or already in, a general rule to follow, you're going to get in trouble if you pay a doctor to send you referrals. And that was Absolutely. very clear with us. And you make that clear throughout the organization. That's how you get in really big trouble. can ultimately go to jail, bad headline risk, everything, <laughs> to just avoid that at all costs. But there's not a risk if you're actually paying the clinicians or the social workers or, I mean, are you just doing the, the good feeling to, or are you actually then paying them a referral fee? No, we cannot pay them any kind of referral fee. Obviously, we pay our own clinicians. We have to pay them wages, right? Of course. But anybody who's not an employee of ours, we can't pay any of anything. It's when you, even when you, I know you were joking about the farmer rep dinners, we can't even take people out to dinner. We can get pens and pads, but it has to be a de minimis item to make sure. We always were very careful about that. I like mugs. <laughs> <laughs> we, I don't think we did mugs. We did do like some water jugs, but been, I, I can get you one. <laughs> we've been Thank speaking you. with healthcare experts Jack Drawn and Matt Brom. Of course, Matt Brom being an attorney with Arnold Golden Gregory who focuses his work and practice on healthcare. And one of the things that was mentioned last week or a week before last when we were uh, hosting the folks from Cancer Treatment Centers of America was their certificate of need. They, when they moved and relocated their uh, uh, place to hospital here in this area, that they were restricted on how many patients that they could actually see from Georgia. And that was around a certificate of need. I'm curious from a listener's perspective, how is that determined? Well, they, they probably had a special CON rule uh, the CON process here. Anytime, what does that stand for? Certificate, certificate of need. It, it's a the process you go through anytime you need to implement some sort of reviewable by statute health service. Mm -hmm. So if you want to start a new hospital, you've got to go out and get a CON. If you want to buy a big piece of equipment, CT scanner, you have to go and get what's called a letter of non-reviewability saying that it is not subject to CON review. Uh, and the CON process, it is a very expensive and time-consuming process. Uh, for example, if you want to start an ambulatory surgery center, you have to go and get a letter for that. But it's subject to cha challenge, and so you can be in appeals for years defending that, that, that there is the need out there. Right. And, and so who is making that decision? Where do we go to... You know, who's the body that's saying The Department this? of Community Health in, in the state of Georgia is the body that, that regulates that, that process. And so then my, I guess, would-be competitors are the ones that are coming and saying, no, there's no need for this. Like Winch I know Winship was in quite a tuttle, tittle when the cancer centers, treatment centers were coming in. And that's a whole different animal. They, they've, they had a special piece of legislation specifically for CTCA. Uh, but... It, 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 it's definitely a uh, – you will find that there are some hospitals out there that will appeal simply to delay the process for, from, their, from a competitive standpoint. You know, it is with all these regulations and all the steps that you have to go to, it is still amazing to me that people get away with stuff all the time. So how, how do they do that? I mean, how's that, how does that happen? Well, you can only police so much, I guess. I was going to say the sheer numbers is probably part of it. That's right. And when we talked about the OIG earlier, you used to not see as much enforcement, and it's everyone is you know, on their on their toes now because they're really putting a lot of money out there to to go after healthcare fraud and abuse, 
And so it feels like all of a sudden they're going after. But they, they've really uh, they've got a larger budget and they're hiring more people on a day-to-day basis and they're, they're really going after it. Now, I don't remember who I was talking to recently, but that very piece was discussed and that was that they are actively building, it was something like 17 or 18 per state uh, agents who were going to be going in and full-time fraud and abuse yeah and that the thing that troubled me about that was that they were going to be compensated based on what they find and um it was oh it was it was in my discussion uh, we had an attorney that focused on malpractice and we and 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 the icd-10 conversation as we were getting ready to convert for that and he talked about the fact that he could go into just about any practice and bankrupt them if he wanted, just because of that's. All, I've always errors. found that pretty interesting, and I don't know if it's the same in the hospice industry, but you find a lot of contractors who are hired by the government to come in and really find problems. And the more problems they find, the more money they make. Right, and it just seems like that's really going to be like a reality reality TV show in the making. Consuming our own, really, we're going to end up carving out. Sections. I mean, because like like he said, he said I I could easily because he he did consulting for yeah. companies that are converting to ICD-10 and other comp compliance. And that always raises an interesting issue uh, on self-reporting uh, because there's the Medi- Medicare 60-day overpayment rule. So to the extent that you uh, identify an overpayment that you've been paid too much, you're supposed to tell the government about that, and you have 60 days to do it. And that's actually been uh, there was a court case recently which expanded the definition of your knowledge uh, of the overpayment to you should have known about the overpayment. But as as far as a self-reporting, that's an interesting issue because if you've got a small problem, do you want to self-report? And then all of a sudden you've got a contractor coming in and going through all your paperwork. Yeah. And it's it's already pretty problematic just getting paid by Medicare in in the physician's office. Literally, they're going through having to resubmit almost every every chart. Do people actually avoid you at cocktail parties? Just wondering. <laughs> I, I hope not. I think get, I'm pretty fun. <laughs> don't get mad in a corner to talk about all this stuff. <laughs> we talked earlier about the fact that compliance is one of the big driving forces as far as where healthcare organizations in particular spend their, their, their dollars. Are there things that they can do to simplify that process or to make that flow smoother that that they need a little bit less revenue going towards the compliance side of things, or is it just the, the beast that it is? Well, you know, if they hire sophisticated consultants or sophisticated counsel, uh, they can usually get the, get everything streamlined pretty pretty easily uh, and get them in shape and at least advise them on where they should be, where maybe their risks are. Are there some areas that you find that tend to be the common places where? Billing. Yeah. Billing is the common issue. Uh, you know, there's a lot of contract. Again, going back to the contractors, a lot of contractors that once once the government discovers one little issue, they send someone in and they want to look at all your billing records and they, and they'll do audits of various patient records. Now, will you be helping with that from the client's perspective in, involved in that in any way, or is it once they're there, they every well, no, we do assist in that process and we can help streamline that process. And we we have a lot of experience working with those various contractors. Um, and, and understand what they're looking for. 
Well, as as always, we chewed up an hour really quickly. So before we run out of time, are there some final thoughts that if I'm a healthcare, either physician or hospital or... Or having a cocktail party. That's right. <laughs> that, that I might want to consider as it relates to the you know the legal needs. Well, it's re- really get in on it on the front end as opposed to when the government is knocking at your door. Uh, do due diligence on yourself or to the extent that you're going to buy someone um, a, a target. Really do due diligence on the, on that company or yourself, and and make sure you're not going to have a problem later on. Where can folks go to get information about you and Arnold Golden Gregory? They can visit the website, www.agg.com, or they can email me at matt, M-A-T-T, dot brom, B-R-O-H-M, at agg.com. How about you, Jay? Uh, Yes. As I uh, mentioned before, people can contact me anytime if they'd like to talk hospice or home health or really any kind of health care services. Or next gig. you got a hot Twitter Twitter feed, I know. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I just had to tell them what my Twitter, I had to look up my Twitter feed. I haven't used it in three years. But um, so that's probably not the best way to reach me. But you can email me. Yes, certainly if you have opportunities. uh, I'd love to talk to you uh, again, Jack, J-A-C-K dot drawn, D-R-A-U-G-H-O-N at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from you for, I have, before we sign off There's today? nothing in here. I've got nothing final. <laughs> <laughs> As always, I can't believe we went through an hour so quickly. Well, if you uh, haven't done so already, get over to ShareWIC, S-H-A-R-E-W-I-K dot com, sharing what I know, what that stands for. And check out their services also, as we mentioned at the jump. Um, get over to healthconnectsouth.com and register for their upcoming event on interoperability and precision medicine in uh, Durham, North Carolina, coming up. And use the Radio X promo to uh, get your 20% off of your registration fee. And if you've not done so already and you're checking out the podcast, in the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll see the Apple logo. That'll take you to the iTunes store, and you can actually subscribe to the podcast. And the weekly episode will be downloaded straight to your device automatically for you, so you can check it out on their way to work or walking the dog, whatever the case may be for you. To the guys in the studio, Jack and Matt, I really appreciate you all taking time out of your day. I know you guys are busy, and, and Diana, for joining us here in the studio. Really appreciate that. And for all the folks who made us a part of their day-to-day, we want to say thank you very much. Turn around and share this, because we're trying to put this information out there on a broad a base as we can. You might just help out somebody that you know and didn't even realize you were doing so just by hitting share. So please do that. And we'll see you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. This show is brought to you by Sherwick Media. Sherwick is the health and wellness solution, content that inspires change. Learn more at www.sherwick.com. That's sharewick.com. And link up with us on Facebook and Twitter.